With the recent colonial pipeline criminal attack, we've seen that ransomware is an urgent national security risk that threatens schools, hospitals, businesses, and governments across the globe. To put it simply, we are on the cusp of a global digital pandemic, driven by greed, a vulnerable digital ecosystem, and an ever-widening criminal enterprise. That's Chris Krebs, former director of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency under the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And he's right. Ransomware is malware that blocks access to the data on a computer until a sum of money is paid, usually a certain amount of Bitcoin. Failure to pay and your data is encrypted forever. Sometimes, even when you do pay, your data might still not be recovered. In response to this increasing plague upon the internet, there's a public-private partnership that has created a task force designed to disrupt the ransomware payments, therefore disincentivizing the attacks. The ransomware task force urged the Biden White House to make finding, frustrating, and apprehending the parties responsible for ransomware a priority within the U.S. intelligence community and to designate the current wave of digital extortion as a national security threat. In a moment, we'll hear about someone who successfully interrupted the ransom payment process all on his own. Oh, and our hero? He's just 21 years old. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about hacking cryptocurrencies, bug bounties, securing our election systems, and yes, ransomware, and how a high school, now university student, has already gained valuable experience in all of the above. Everyone's journey into information security is unique. We all start from different places. For Jack Cable, he started when he was maybe nine years old, and it wasn't by playing computer games. He was watching over his older brother's shoulder. I got into computers, this was when I was in middle school, so maybe seventh grade or so. Um, so for context, I have a brother who's four years older, and he had started when he was in seventh grade, so maybe nine or so around the time, he took this Stanford class, Intro to Programming, their CS106A class. And I saw him doing this and was just really amazed at everything he was making. He was doing like a hangman game, um, kind of a Facebook thing. And all this was just super cool to me, seeing how he was able to program these things from scratch. Um, of course, I was nine. I knew nothing about how it worked. I would just watch him do it um, and really want to get more into it. So then when I was um, the same age as he was, so like 12 or so, um, I started doing this uh, Stanford course as well. Just um, all the lectures were up on YouTube, uh, following through those, doing the assignments. And that was kind of my first introduction to programming, seeing how um, really yeah, I, could, I could build whatever I wanted. And that really excited me. Still at an early age, Jack exposed in a cryptocurrency app a security flaw, one that he discovered, one that opened the door to a world of bug bounties. So this was then when I was in high school as a sophomore. 
um, was working on building an integration for a, a cryptocurrency website. I wanted to let people, um, it was a Chrome extension. I wanted to let people pay money to other people um, like natively through Twitter. Um, so I was working with their API and noticed that first of all, I could send $0 or zero Bitcoin to someone. And that was weird, right? Because it's not really doing anything. And then I tried sending like negative $1 in Bitcoin. And to my surprise, what actually happened was instead of sending money to them, it would take money from their account. Um, so I could effectively steal money from anyone's account. Um, and what was really fortunate was that they had a bug bounty program. So I was able to actually work with them to get it fixed. I had a really positive response for it, got paid for it, which was nice. And that was my intro then to um, kind of the world of security. Bug bounties are programs where vendors pay researchers for finding new vulnerabilities. In Episode 7, Tim Becker talked about specializing in certain types of vulnerabilities in bug bounties. And in Episode 9, Stoke echoed that as well. Does Jack look for anything in particular in his bug bounties? So I think it definitely changed over time. Kind of initially, when I started doing this, um, I, of course, knew very little. So a lot of it was... Um, just looking at the standard vulnerabilities out there, kind of some cross-site scripting, um, direct object references, all of that. Um, one of the interesting ones that caught my eyes early on was I'd read this post about someone who, this was with Starbucks, they found a way that they could exploit a race condition to redeem a gift card multiple times. And in doing so, they could get, um, I think it was kind of the infinite balance with Starbucks. Um, so I saw that, and that was really crazy to me because it was, wasn't was something that was immediately apparent. You'd have to do something kind of intricate to test for that. A race condition is when a device or system attempts to perform two or more operations at the same time. But because of the nature of the device or system, the operations must be done in a particular sequence in order to be done correctly. Knowing about race conditions helped Jack with his bug bounties. So that one in particular, I've seen a lot more race conditions, um, say, sometimes like with that, for instance, you can spend your balance twice and then kind of keep doing that back and forth to get infinite balance. I've seen less the negative amount just because in some ways it is so trivial that um, you would think everyone would hopefully think about, like you shouldn't be able to send negative $1 to someone else. Uh, but of course, software is complex and these bugs do happen. So while I've seen it less, I certainly wouldn't rule it out anywhere. So I think yeah, if you were to try it on PayPal right now, I, I, I think they've thought of that. He also applied this knowledge to cryptocurrency research. But I started looking at, at that particularly for companies, um, cryptocurrency companies that had um, bug bounties, because of course, the impact of a race condition for cryptocurrency is potentially being able to steal all the money held by, say, that exchange. Um, and I ended up finding a couple really severe vulnerabilities that had I exploited them, I think in one case, like the wallet had maybe $100,000 that I could have just withdrawn right there and then if I had wanted to. Um, they paid me a fraction of that in a bug bounty, but the important part was just knowing that I could have done that and that now that's cashed up um, so no one can exploit that. Today, bug bounties are hosted on a variety of platforms. Vendors host their own, but there are also third parties that act as brokers. So yeah, there's a bunch of platforms out there. So the one I actually started on, this was the one that hosted this cryptocurrency company, was a platform called Cobalt.io. I think they've pivoted, they pivoted a few years ago more to kind of doing like crowdsourced pen testing, so less on the bug bounties. 
Um, but at a time, they had these open bug bounty programs that anyone could participate in. Um, most of them happened to be cryptocurrency companies, uh, which was a lot of where I started out. Ultimately, Jack settled on HackerOne. HackerOne had uh, more programs on there. I, I started doing that. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of interesting how like each of the bug bounty platforms has this incentive structure in place to keep you hacking on their platform. Um, like I just as well to start out doing this on bug crowd, um, level up there and start getting more invitations to private programs. But I think that there definitely are strong incentives to like once you're you've done reasonably well on one platform to keep focusing on that because yeah, you get access to more private programs. Um, I've done a bunch of the live hacking events, at least pre-COVID, uh, which are a really great experience. Um, and yeah, you get back by kind of um, yeah, in a way, staying loyal to a, a platform. So let's keep some context here. Jack is still a teenager in high school. Most hackers his age are trying their hand at CTFs, such as Pico CTF or Seesaw. So did Jack try to play any CTFs? So not really. Um, I, I did did some once I got more into bug bounty and saw that these were a thing to do, but that wasn't how I got into it. Um, really, most of what I did was just looking at different bug bounty programs um, across the board, seeing what I could find. Of course, I, I started from a position of like knowing some web development. I'd maybe like read about like SQL injection, and whatnot, but had never actually seen that in practice. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of figuring out the landscape, looking at different people's blogs, tutorials about what they'd found, and then going out and trying that out against different companies with bug bounty programs. Um, so in that way, I think they were a really effective way for me to like learn in the real world. Here's what companies actually care about. Um, here's what, what they'll actually pay you for, which was nice. Um, but yeah, CTFs, I did a little, but um, they weren't how I got into it. HackerOne has elevated bug bounties to live events, spectacles, if you will. They fly people such as Stoke around the world in HackerOne live events. They even invited Jack. In this case, Jack was invited to hack the Pentagon. So that's kind of a fun story, and that's something I, again, never thought I would have gotten into. So this was shortly after I'd started bug bounties. Um, so I started them maybe when I was 15, and then uh, maybe six months later, um, when I, by the time I'd turned 16, I got an email from HackerOne. I think the subject was, what if I told you the Pentagon wanted you to hack it? And this was the first hack the Pentagon program. Um, so I was invited to participate in that. Um, I, since I was just starting out, I didn't know much. I found maybe two things, both that other people had already found. Um, so didn't get paid for those, but still got acknowledged and got to see just like how cool this was that like I was one of the first people being invited to actually hack into the uh, Department of Defense's networks um, and people um, were getting paid for it. Hack the Pentagon was the first bug bounty in the history of the U.S. federal government. It is spearheaded by the Digital Defense Service, DDS, a DOD team charged with bringing in private sector talent and best practices to transform the way the department approaches its technology. So I started with that one, um, and what that led to, I participated in another one called Hack the Army later that year, did slightly better than that. 
Um, and at that point, um, the, the fun part was, so I was in this Slack group called the Bug Bounty Forum, which is kind of where a lot of bug bounty people were getting together and it's grown significantly in the time since. And someone from HackerOne had posted that they were looking for people who would participate in the Hack Pentagon program to fly out to their San Francisco office to meet with people from the DoD um, before the launch of Hack the Air Force. Um, so I took them up on that. They flew me out to San Francisco. I was, I think, 16 years old. Uh, my parents just gave me the blessing, sent me off. Okay, so you're 16, still in high school, and the Department of Defense is introducing you to members of the military and the Air Force. Whoa, how cool is that? There I met the Defense Digital Service for the first time, um, and just um, really, I, I had, until that point, I'd never seen myself doing work for the government. It seemed kind of just this bureaucracy that you can't really improve. It's just always going to be mediocre. Uh, but I saw what they were doing. I saw that they were actually taking these practices that kicked off in industry, um, bug bounties, engaging hackers who can do a much better job of identifying where flaws were. Um, so that that really stuck with me. And after that, I did um, the Hack the Air Force competition, where I ended up placing first in finding um, around 30 bugs, uh, which eventually led me to working for um, Defense Digital Service out of high school. A moment ago, I mentioned the Digital Defense Service, DDS. It is, according to its website, dds.mil, a team of highly technical nerds from the private sector and government inclusive of designers, product managers, engineers, and data scientists. Drill down under the engineer category, and you'll find that engineers are defined as visible pillars of the project teams. Whether they're coding, hacking, or physically engineering hardware, DDS engineers are patient, collaborative leaders on a project. And under that engineering category, you'll find hackers, who are described as discovering exploits and possible avenues of malfeasance by employing the tools of those who would do us harm and preventing it. So I did some work with uh, DDS over the summer after high school. It was the coolest thing to be able to work to the, at the Pentagon right out of high school. Um, I don't think too many people get that experience. Um, so that was great. I helped organize um, some of the Hack the Pentagon events. So the one we did was called Hack the Marine Corps. Uh, where we had um, 100 hackers and a bunch of Marine uh, Corps cyber officers in a room um, kind of collaborating to see what we could do on these Marine Corps networks. So that was really great. And I've been doing, um, I, the way I was hired, I still can work in a kind of part-time advisory capacity for DDS. Somehow, Jack ended up working on security behind the 2020 presidential election. When I was registering to vote in Chicago um, and in Illinois, I noticed that there was a pretty bad um, a SQL injection vulnerability in the voter registration system. And this was especially bad. This was 2018 or so. So by the time I was, um, yeah, the first time I was registering to vote, but I'd seen in 2016 that the Russians had exploited a SQL injection vulnerability in the Illinois voter registration system. So it was really bad that I was seeing this two years later, um, apparently unpatched. And that kind of set off um, a, a pathway of trying to actually disclose this to the right people. Um, I think to a lot of people, the way elections work is kind of um, opaque and was to me as well. 
So I had no idea who actually to get this to. I tried going through like the Illinois governor's office, uh, through um, some Congress people, um, eventually figured out the right contacts with the help of CISA um, and got to them. Um, and they were able to patch that. Um, but that kind of set off my involvement with elections and led me to then uh, working with SZA. Uh, At the top of the episode, we heard from Chris Krebs, former director of SZA. Now Jack is working for SZA. Yeah, for context there, for people who might not be as familiar with SZA's mission, um, so SZA kind of coins itself as the nation's risk advisor, um, that it's helping the defenders do a better job uh, from these adversaries that are targeting us, um, it, it's tasked with um, protecting these 17 critical infrastructure areas, which span everything from healthcare to electricity to dams and military. All of this is under CISA's purview. For each of these areas, there is typically an ISAC, so yeah, it's an information sharing and analysis center um, that coordinates a lot of the work um, among these critical infrastructure areas. Um, so, for instance, with the elections, there's it's called the well, there's kind of the broader umbrella of the MS ISAC, the multi-state ISAC, and then under that you have the EI ISAC, the Elections Infrastructure ISAC, and um, they're housed under the Center for Internet Security. And what they do is kind of yeah, pull together uh, not only states but all of the or a, a large amount of the local jurisdictions. And that was actually the main way that we interfaced with them, just because um, it, it says it doesn't have all of those relationships with some of these tiny counties. So the ISAC was a helpful partner there um, to actually be able to reach some of these um, smaller places, for instance, if we had found a potential vulnerability and needed to get their attention. And what was relevant for the elections work when I was there, so I worked there from June of 2020 to January of 2021, is the government sector. Um, because, of course, elections are highly decentralized um, by the nature of the Constitution. The states manage their own election systems. So you have all 50 states, D.C., uh, the territories. And then under that, you have counties or whatever local jurisdictions are in place. Every state does it differently. And in total, um, I think there's something like 8,000 or so um, individual election jurisdictions. Um, and that's dependent on how the state is set up. It might be the county, it might be an individual town who has a staff of five and a part-time IT specialist. Um, so you really have um, huge variance um, across the um, elections landscape in terms of the capabilities that um, these, these districts have. And of course, when it's them against, um, as we've seen, a nation state actor uh, like Russia, that is not a fair fight. So they need whatever help they can get. Um, that's kind of where CISA comes into play. Um, and a large part of my focus at CISA was helping to roll out this tool um, that I'd started building at Defense Digital Service. It got turned into more of a, a larger project Crossfeed is an asset discovery tool used to monitor and gather information about vulnerabilities on public-facing assets supporting national critical functions. Crossfeed collects data from a variety of open source tools, publicly available resources, and data feeds. What it does is nothing too special, kind of, if you're following like the asset inventory um, 
attack surface footprint space, but it's an open source tool that maps out an organization's online footprint. So seeing what their attack surface is, um, what an adversary would be seeing um, if they were to be targeting your organization. And the nice part with CrossFeed is that, that it's kind of given that's this outside view and something that one attackers are already doing and two um, isn't anything that kind of someone on the internet could just go and do. It just is kind of visiting your websites, um, light scraping, um, using some um, external tools like Shodan. Shodan is a search engine that lets the user find specific types of computers connected to the internet using a variety of filters. For example, by typing in OpenSSL 1.0.1, that will return all the devices still affected by the Heartbleed vulnerability. So we, we were able to put that together and offer it uh, what we called an opt-out basis to states and counties. So instead of it being a program that they had to choose to do, uh, which is kind of how citizen services had been to this day, um, they we instead phrased it as, we'll start doing this unless you would prefer us not to. Um, and that allowed us to get much broader coverage, reaching especially these smaller counties, smaller jurisdictions that don't have the staff to actually reach out and talk to CISA. Um, instead, we would just tell them if we found anything that immediately required their attention. Um, so we did that and had some successes in kind of warning um, states and counties about vulnerabilities. And uh, the cool part too is that no one actually ended up opting out. Everyone um, um, found value in it when we told them about vulnerabilities. And I think appreciate this kind of extra outreach effort from CISA to tell them where um, some of their most critical vulnerabilities were ahead of the election. Election security improved substantially in the 2020 U.S. elections. Shortly afterwards, Chris Krebs announced that the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes or changed votes or was in any way compromised. This was in part to tools such as CrossFeed. And we got a lot of feedback that that was something they really loved because it gave them kind of a live view of what they had out there. Even if there wasn't kind of a pressing vulnerability, they, there might just have been kind of like a website that had existed a few years ago they forgot about, but still had some trails left on the internet. Um, so I think that yeah, that was a really valuable portion too, to be able to kind of give them something that they could actually go and use um, and um, use that to um, yeah, better support their security. Somewhere in our story is the typical rite of passage, graduating from high school and settling into a university program. Jack did those things while continuing to work for the federal government. So some of this was concurrent. So I started, um, the or I did a summer at Defense Digital Service and then started at Stanford that fall. Um, but I continued doing some part-time work with them and then continued participating in bug bounties, all of that as well. Now I'm a, a junior at Stanford. It would seem, given Jack's many accomplishments thus far, that university was perhaps uh, nice to have. I mean, he could have just gone into the workforce for the government, for Google, for Facebook. But fortunately, he did not. Yeah, I think that certainly college degrees are not needed for this kind of work. The vast majority of um, kind of the practical security uh, 
work that, that I've done, the skills there that I've learned have come from outside of college, outside of school. Um, I, I do think that there's really no better way to learn than to learn by doing um, when it comes to security. But at the same time, there, there is certainly value um, in going to school, um, not just for um, security. I think that there, there's a long way that colleges need to go in improving how this kind of stuff is taught. Um, because for instance, at Stanford right now, there's maybe two or three classes that are focused on security and everything else just kind of happens without um, thinking of security at all. Um, so, so that does need to be improved. But um, at Stanford, I've definitely been exposed to not only kind of the more fundamentals of computer science, um, all of the kind of underpinnings of how stuff works, getting a deeper understanding there, but then also some of the policy level implications of, okay, so stuff is vulnerable, now what? How do we make this better uh, at a wider scale? There needs to be a balance of real-world experience and university work. But are we doing enough to teach computer security at the university level? Is it mandatory, for example, for those learning code today? Um, yeah, the answer to that is no. Right now, we're not doing enough with um, cybersecurity. Um, so this was something I looked into um, a year or two ago. And out of the top 20 universities in computer science um, in the United States, only one of them, uh, I think it was UC San Diego, uh, requires undergrad students in computer science to take a cybersecurity uh, course. So given this and given that, uh, from what I've seen at Stanford, you can kind of go through your undergrad degree without thinking of security at all. Um, there's a lot missing here, not only for people who are going to be working in cybersecurity, but also people who are working in, um, say, a software engineering job. Because of course, if you're a software engineer, security is still your responsibility. If you write a bug that gets exploited, um, then uh, harm can be done. Um, so thinking about how we can better um, lead future software engineers to at least be aware of some of the security consequences so they can have that intuition, say, even if they don't know everything about security, just say like, hey, maybe I should ask um, the security team at my company about this um, before something bad happens. So I think that um, there, there certainly needs to be both a focus on increasing the cybersecurity workforce, but then beyond that, people working in technical roles should have some uh, minimum understanding of security consequences. There's some great people working in academia today, such as Alex Stamos, who runs the Stanford Internet Observatory. He previously was with ISEC Partners, then Yahoo, then Facebook, arriving at very interesting times in both of those latter companies. I would think working with Alex would be very cool indeed. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff, kind of both on the security side, also um, a closely related area of disinformation, um, doing work with the Stanford Internet Observatory, and really just working to eliminate harms on the internet. Um, so that's what Alex Stamos came to Stanford to do. He teaches a class called Trust and Safety Engineering, where security is maybe two weeks of that. But his argument is there's so much bad stuff that's happening on the internet, we can't just scope it to security. Uh, we need to address kind of the, the everyday um, harms that come that in some ways hurt a lot more people than um, just um, a cyber security breach. Ransomware. 
So we started out talking about ransomware. Invariably, anybody who works in security gets asked about it. Or they get asked to help out. In Jack's case, it was a call from a family friend. Yep. Um, so this was, I think, yeah, last week. So I got a call, um, this was Wednesday night, I believe, from a family friend. Uh, basically saying that like he had a, this like network attached storage device that he'd been using. He's a doctor also. So um, I think he might've had some patient information there as well as his family photos on it. And it got hit by this new strain of ransomware. Everything on it was encrypted and uh, they were demanding a ransom of 0.01 Bitcoin, which is about like $550. Um, so he called wanting to see what I could do. Um, of course, my response was like, that sucks. Ransomware is malware that copies the contents of your hard drive, then encrypts it, then demands a ransom paid before the data can be recovered. If you don't have anti-malware on your computer that protects against these types of attacks, or if you don't have good backups, often there's not much you can do. I wanted to see if I could help, um, though kind of yeah, his view was, yeah, worst case, he'll pay this tomorrow morning, $500 to get back kind of all of this invaluable stuff that he didn't necessarily have backed up elsewhere was a no-brainer, but it's still $500 and uh, would prefer to avoid that if possible. There are lots of different ransomware families out there. This was the QLocker ransomware. So what is that? So yeah, from my understanding, the way it works is, so there's this product called, made by QNAP, called their network attached storage. Um, so you can use that to um, manage um, store files uh, from your network. Um, so this is a consumer product and a vulnerability came out. Um, maybe this was like one day, so two days before the ransomware hit, um, sometime around then. And this was, I believe the one that was being exploited was either, there were several vulnerabilities. There's one SQL injection and one command injection vulnerability um, in the device. And this was just completely unauthenticated. So if your um, device, of course, since it's network attached, in a lot of cases, it's probably attached to the greater internet as well. Um, so if that's the case, and if people can see your device, then they could remotely exploit it um, in order to hit you with this ransomware. And I think what happened was it was um, just just a super basic thing where they, to my knowledge, they didn't even install anything on your device. They just kept running commands on your device to kind of go and encrypt all of your files. Um, so yeah, they, they kept doing that using 7-zip to do so, um, just supplying a password. And yeah, they would hit you that way. Uh, one of the things that someone found was that like, if you were able to catch this before your device reboot or shut off, uh, which of course is probably the first thing that people do, uh, which is unfortunate, so might not have been able to help too many people, but there's a log file that kept a list of all these commands that had been run, um, all of the 7-zip commands, and that include the password that was being used to encrypt files. Um, so if you were able to catch that, then um, you'd be able to decrypt the files on your computer without paying it. But for most people, that was kind of too late since they'd already restarted their um, device and the log file got cleared. So that was if Jack couldn't do anything. But what if Jack could? So, yeah, that's the call that I got from him. And uh, he sent me kind of like the readme file that they had put on his computer saying, like, here's where you go. Here's your key that you enter in to get the password. 
Um, so I, I started looking at that. We left it. He was going to like tuck his kids into bed. Um, he's in Chicago. So it was a little later. And um, like I was looking into it, but didn't have much faith. I was Googling around to see if anyone had found anything. They hadn't. Um, so then I went to the ransomware website, which was a, a Tor website. There are different types of internet. There's the common internet that browsers such as Chrome or Firefox can navigate easily. Type in google.com and you get a search engine. Then there's the deep web, which is the intranet systems behind passwords and authentication. Then there's the dark web, an abyss that requires special browsers such as I2P or the Onion router, better known as Tor. With I2P and Tor browsers, you can access the dark web servers, where these ransomware payments can be made anonymously. So I go on there and see, um, kind of assess out the flow. And the way it works, which I think is pretty typical for ransomware, they give you this um, client key, they call it, um, that appears to be, um, it's like a RSA encrypted uh, key of your, or RSA encryption of your password. Uh, the private key lives on uh, these ransomware operator servers. Um, if you supply it to them and you correctly pay the Bitcoin, then they'll decrypt for that for you and give you back your password. If you don't, then you're out of luck. What Jack found was that in this particular case, the setup was a little different. Different enough that he could manipulate it into thinking that he had paid the ransom. I saw that the way the flow worked was that you had to send 0.01 Bitcoin to the address they provided and give them your transaction ID. The first thing that I noticed was that the Bitcoin addresses they were using were shared. So the Bitcoin address they gave me, I looked and maybe 10 or so people had already paid the ransom. So the first thing I tried doing, of course, was just taking one of those transaction IDs already, pasting it in to see if maybe like they weren't validating that had already been used. Um, unfortunately, they were, so I got a message I couldn't do that because someone had already paid it. Uh, but then this really dumb thing I tried that I didn't expect would work was I changed like at the end of the address of lowercase b to an uppercase b um, and submitted that. And to my surprise, it gave me back the password immediately. Here's an example where case upper and lower becomes very important. A system that confirms that a particular transaction code has already been used can be misconfigured to not recognize a change in case of a single character. So I think what was happening there was that they had kind of these two checks for if you'd paid. So the first was, was this a transaction ID that we've already seen before? That check was case sensitive. So they um, made that check. It didn't look like one they'd already seen because um, uppercase B is not equal to lowercase B. But then the second step is that they're checking this on the Bitcoin blockchain. They supply that transaction ID. And when they do that, it's probably normalized to lowercase um, that looks like a valid transaction, so they let it go. Um, so that was kind of, yeah, what I found, and he tried the password, and lo and behold, it worked. Jack didn't share much about the vulnerability he'd discovered. He didn't, for example, want the criminals to know anyone had found the flaw. So at that point, it was kind of an interesting dilemma, right? Because... You want to help as many people as possible while not tipping off the ransomware operators that there's this flaw in their system. Because, of course, if they catch on to it, they can patch it and suddenly I can't get people's keys back uh, because it's fundamentally a flaw in the Tor site they're operating. 
Um, so what I decided to do was I just put something out on Twitter, also commented on the forum, um, essentially saying like, hey, if you've been hit with this, I might be able to help send me a message. Um, and I started getting messages almost immediately from people with their keys. Now, the, the thinking there was that this would allow people to find me without immediately revealing what the flaw was. Um, of course, since they are likely storing logs on their servers, um, as they start to see this kind of traffic, um, they, they can probably figure that out. So it's not a permanent thing, but at least I can help some people. Um, and I got messages from maybe 50 or so people um, within I don't know, an hour of doing this. And I was able to help them, um, went through the flow. I didn't share the flaw with them. I just gave them uh, their password and went from there. So I, I did this. And at that point, it also started, started talking with um, some companies that kind of are more experienced with this. Their plan was to gather everyone's keys up front and then exploit it all at once. Um, before they caught on. Uh, but the unfortunate part was right as we were gearing up to do this, this was maybe like two hours after I discovered this, they patched it. Um, so kudos to them for being on top of this. <laughs> it was coincidentally around 9 a.m. or so Moscow time. So no clue where they're located, but um, if they're kind of Eastern Europe, as a lot of these people are, then um, yeah, that would not be surprising and would line up. Um, but yeah, the unfortunate part is that I've gotten hundreds of messages from people still going on to this day saying like, Hey, can you help me? And there's not much I can do other than kind of point them to ransomware best practices. Um, but yeah, I was able to help 50 people, but yeah, there seems to be a whole lot more who I was not able to help and yeah, still are struggling with this. Often, as an InfoSec security person, I get asked whether or not a particular malware is super sophisticated. Often, it is not. The elements are cut and pasted from other sources, or there's a kit that allows you to create your own ransomware. So is QLocker super sophisticated, created by elite hackers? I think just based on kind of the this super simple flaw that I found with payment, I think it's fair to say that this is probably not a very sophisticated actor. Um, and likewise, like with the method of attacking this, they found a vulnerability that had been published. They reverse engineered the fix um, in order to find out what the vulnerability was and start exploiting this. Um, so they probably didn't have to do any actual like research into the system other than just kind of monitoring for um, the, the CVE, seeing that and then looking at what the flaw was and targeting people who had yet to deploy the patch. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this isn't very sophisticated behavior um, and kind of goes along with the broader point that like this was a very simple flaw that I did not expect would work, but ended up um, allowing me to help around 50 people saving say a collective $27,000 or so. Um, so I think that really any way we can um, use the sloppiness of these attackers to our advantage can go a long way. Um, because even though we might think of everyone kind of as being these ultra sophisticated adversaries, nation states um, who are um, coming up with zero day exploits and getting into everything, uh, the reality is that 
so many of these are just financially motivated. They're looking for what is the quickest way they can make money. Um, so if we can make it harder for them to do their job, then that can deter them uh, from doing it in the first place. I mean, we've seen this break in sophistication before. WannaCry, for example, used two NSA-exposed tools, Eternal Blue and Double Pulsar, in order to land on as many computers as possible. But on the backside, it wasn't very sophisticated. First, the payment system wasn't really set up, so people who paid didn't necessarily get their data returned. And then no one actually withdrew the payments that were made, which is another story. But then, within the sophisticated WannaCry, there was a kill switch in the code. The malware reached out to the internet to see if a particular domain existed, and if it did, it shut down. So researcher Marcus Hutchins, discovering that, did that. He registered that domain, really just a sequence of alphanumerics, and WannaCry shut down. Poof. Like that. I think that's a great point, too, that even like if we do have a fairly sophisticated actor, they will make mistakes, too, because if you, I mean, if you look at defense, we like to think we have pretty good teams. Google, Facebook, all these big companies have the best people in the world protecting their systems. They still mess up. Um, so it's very unlikely that an attacker is going to pull this off um, kind of without any flaws, too. So, um, yeah, really, I, I think that's one of the key parts of fighting this is that security researchers can identify not only, of course, places where we can better secure our own systems, but also if there's any holes to poke, like with WannaCry, um, a, a simple mistake they made that can stop the whole thing. Uh, these are things that we have to be uh, working on. So Jack managed to stop a financial transaction. Actually, he stopped 50 of them, probably worth about $27,000. Isn't that risky? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was kind of one of the concerns I'd had. Um, also, yeah, kind of first, yeah, tweeting about this, talking about it, um, um, articles, stuff like that, that, yeah, if I kind of disrupt them enough, then they're not going to be very happy with me. Um, and that, that of course, is a real concern. I think at least with this, I'm not too concerned because um, the way it was put to me is that it's um, often a drop in the bucket, um, that they're making millions of dollars a year, if not a month, um, doing stuff like this and me stopping 50 people from paying them $27,000 isn't going to sufficiently um, impact that. But I, I do think that kind of like, yeah, if one were to start doing this more, that that, that could certainly be a concern. Um, that, yeah, it, it's much like, um, yeah, no, drug cartels operate that if you get in the way, then they won't be very happy with you. Um, so I think that's that's certainly um, kind of a consideration that has to be made too. I'm not personally concerned with this instance, but um, definitely something to kind of keep top of mind um, as more stuff like this happens. So what's next for Jack? In a year, he'll be graduating and either thinking about graduate school or joining the workforce which might include working for the U.S. government. There's a lot of uh, fascinating areas with security. 
I have seen that. Um, I, I think that, like I said at the start, I had never seen myself working in government, but now having done it at DDS, having done it at CISA, um, it's clear that there are places where you can make a very large impact. Um, I, I do think you have to be in the right place because, of course, a lot of people in government aren't empowered and don't have the ability to actually go and do the, the good work that they're capable of doing. Um, but I, I'm certainly open to kind of roles in government that allow me to continue doing this kind of stuff um, to better shape um, how we do security on both the federal level and, and engaging with, um, say, critical infrastructure partners. So I'm open to that. Um, I, I think I'm uh, less inclined to kind of, uh, I know, um, kind of yeah, stereotype at Stanford um, embed within Silicon Valley, um, all of the work there. Um, I, I think that, of course, there, that's important work too. Um, but I think kind of, yeah, one of the guiding principles here is that so few, there's such a large need within government for this kind of work um, and kind of areas adjacent to this, that this is somewhere where, yeah, if I can, I want to be able to help. So what advice does Jack have for somebody else starting out in information security at an early age? So I, I don't think by any means it's limited to the government. And for instance, even at um, these social media companies, I think just like how government, um, of course, people have opinions about um, certain parts of government of the military, how all that works. But um, one of the guiding principles is really, um, even if you have some disagreements with how that works, it's better to have a seat at the table. It's better to shape how things go and to be able to help where you can, um, in my opinion, at least. Um, and I, I think that there's, there's of course, yeah, government that you can work in, um, really cool places in the private sector too, um, beyond kind of big tech, um, of course, the entire um, security industry. But I think even at like a Google or a Facebook, it's similar to government in that if you disagree with what they're doing, there might still be places that you can make things better. Um, so, for instance, they're they're starting to focus more on trust and safety, where they're actually um, trying to help um, users and better reduce harm on their platforms. So, if you're able to do that and you're able to make an impact, then I think by all means, that's that's a worthwhile path path to go on. Um, but of course, um, the, the companies don't have an incredible track record here. So, I think just approaching that with skepticism, um, understanding that. Yeah, you can go and try and help. You may or may not be successful, but uh, that, I think that's definitely a worthwhile area to do that as well if you're in a position where you might be able to make some change. At the beginning, I said Jack got his start in computers, not through games or CTFs, but because his older brother was taking a course in it. Had things been different, might Jack still have ended up with computer security? That's a good question. Um, I, I think I certainly... Uh, like might have been exposed to it in um, maybe uh, minimally in high school and then much more in college. Um, but I do think that that kind of drove me to um, get into this earlier on and also, of course, um, determined kind of like some of my college decisions, all of that. So while I might have found my way into it somehow, I think it's safe to say that this certainly set me on the path much earlier on and kind of drove me to um, working in this area now. Um, so I, I think certainly, yeah, to whatever extent we can start to expose people earlier, 
um, not, not just to coding, which um, I think there's a lot of good work being done there, uh, but also to uh, kind of the basics of security um, can yeah, help um, young people yeah, find out whether this is something they're interested in. I'd like to thank Jack for talking about his journey. Clearly, he's found some incredible opportunities through programs such as DDS and through CISA to make significant gains in information security. And his efforts to thwart the QLocker ransomware, even for a few hours, was remarkable. I look forward to following Jack in the future as he decides what he'll do after graduating college. I think we'll hear from him again. Before you go, you can subscribe to The Hacker Mind on Spotify, Google, Apple, Amazon, iHeartRadio, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts and never miss another episode. Check it out. It's been 20 episodes now, so I'd like to hear what you think. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? DM me at Robert Famosi on Twitter or contact me through the Hacker Mind website. The Hacker Mind is a podcast brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For the Hacker Mind, I remain someone very wise beyond my years, Robert Famosi. <laughs> <laughs>